Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the Brian Danesburg Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Danesburg, lead pastor of Alliance Bible Church, located in beautiful southeast Wisconsin. We, uh, we're going to kick a hornet's nest today. As uh, I'm going I'm to talk through five reasons we should be wary of socialism. Five reasons we should be wary of socialism. Uh, Christian Niemitz is uh, a German-born um, economist. He's the currently he's the senior research fellow at uh, London Institute of Economic Affairs, and he has written a book called "Socialism: The Failed Idea That Never Dies." And uh, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is uh, uh, fueled by his work, um, inspired by his work, and uh, I would recommend uh, the the book to you. Its um, treatment of um, primary sources is uh, a, certainly a strength, but his ability to be comprehensive and yet still intelligible was uh, is an attractive thing. So it's we're dipping our toes here in murky waters of of economics and. Um, but that's that's part of Christian living in a complicated world, and uh, so socialism, you know, it it seems to be an idea that seems to possess a kind of a perpetual. Uh, well, some have a perpetual teenage infatuation with it, and um, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is. But upon the final analysis, this is uh, socialism is an idea that should be retired and put out to pasture. Now, if you're listening and the idea of socialism is attractive to you, keep listening. Uh, the, 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 the genuinely altruistic motives that operate within some socialist advocates are worth talking about and providing an alternative approach. And obviously, being a pastor, I believe Christianity does that. And we'll look briefly at that uh, at the end. Now, just so we understand what we're talking about, the definition of socialism, very straightforward. Let me let me say it so we, we're clear about what we're talking about. Um, according to Merriam-Webster, it is any of various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods. Let me say it again. It's any of various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods. So we're talking about cars or kitchen sinks or golf clubs or chairs or teacups or whatever. Uh, collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production of those things. Let me give you five reasons why I think we should be wary of it. Number one is its history of failure. Bottom line, if, if socialism put together a resume and it was a candidate for position on your staff or at your business, you would not hire it. Over the past hundred years, there have been more than two dozen attempts to build a socialist society. I don't, some of you who are maybe aren't as well versed in history may not realize that this has been tried time and again. It's been tried in the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, Albania, Poland, Vietnam, Bulgaria, Romania, Czechoslovakia, North Korea, Hungary, China, East Germany, Cuba, Tanzania, Benin, Laos, Algeria, South Yemen, Somalia, the Congo, Ethiopia, Cambodia, Mozambique, 
Angola, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, among other countries. And all of these attempts have ended in varying degrees of failure. Now, I know you're all smart, and you're asking the question, well, why does there continue to be a fascination with it? If it, if it doesn't have a very good success rate, why is there a fascination with it? Well, there, there's a playbook that, that socialist admirers go to every time, and one of the repeated plays they run is to distance themselves from real-world examples of socialism. And, and Nemitz does a great job documenting this. So the standard line that you'll hear is, well, that wasn't real socialism. Noam Chomsky is one of the most well-known advocates for socialism. Here's what he says. He says this, calling the Soviet Union socialism is just a way to defame socialism. There hasn't been a shred of socialism in the Soviet Union. Now, of course, they called it socialism, but they also called it democracy. They were people's democracies. So if you think that the fall of the Soviet Union is a blow to socialism, you'll also think that it's a blow to democracy. After all, they call themselves democracies, too. So why isn't it a blow to democracy? Makes as much sense. It had nothing to do with socialism. So that's the line. That wasn't real socialism is the standard line that you'll hear from advocates when confronted with socialism's repeated failures. Now, given that more than two dozen attempts to build a socialist society have ended in varying degrees of failure, insisting that none of them were ever really socialist is is the only way in which modern-day socialists can protect their worldview from refutation. However, and Nemus points this out, he says there's a major flaw in this in this line of defense. The, 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 the defense that says this wasn't really socialism. And the defense is usually only deployed after the event. That is, after a socialist experiment has already been widely discredited. In, in other words, you'll never hear, well, what we try to do in Albania, what we're going to try to do in Albania is not real socialism. You don't hear it on the front end. You don't hear what we're, what we're about to try in Benin is not real socialism. You don't hear it on the front end. The not real socialism argument is only deployed after it has failed. So the first reason we should be aware of socialism is its performance record. It, it doesn't have a resume worth hiring. Reason number two are some faulty premises. Some faulty premises. Uh, the, the conventional argument um, in favor of this starts usually like this, that there are profiteering corporations that are ripping off the public and therefore they, they need to be nationalized or, or state controlled to make them work for the common good. Uh, they have to be made accountable to the public rather than private shareholders. So it's this idea that, 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 uh, that profiteering corporations are ripping off the public. Um, you know, first of all, as, as Christians, there's nothing unchristian or unbiblical about earning a profit for your labor. Um, Israel was a theocracy. There were both they were both a people of God and a geopolitical nation. There are assumptions of earning profit all over the Mosaic Law. Yes, there were guardrails against greed, but turning a profit was a given. Second, in the UK, at least, I don't know what it is in the United States. Uh, Nemitz's surveys are all done in the UK. Support for nationalization is strongest in sectors that turn just a 3 to 4% profit, which it isn't much. Basically, it's, it's if your product costs, if you're charging the public $100 for your, your product, it means it took $97 to, to make it, uh, to distribute it, to transport it, to ship it, whatever it is. Um, 
so when they're saying the, the most popular sectors of nationalization in the UK are sectors that are turning three to four percent profit, this is not an economic argument. It's it's just a knee jerk reaction. There's a general anti profit motive, which is the kind of the first faulty premise, an anti profit motive in advocates of of socialism. Second premise that there's a there's a huge assumption on the part of socialist admirers that the public sector, the state is driven by altruistic motives and that whatever is done by the state will be done for the common good. This is this assumption that sinful human beings who work in government will be more holy than sinful human beings who work in corporations and own small businesses is naive. Third faulty premise is that there's a conflict between satisfying people's needs and the aim of earning a profit. Um, socialism, I don't think, can figure out a way to allow these two to exist side by side. But think about it. Under conditions of voluntary exchange, uh, all within the rule of law, how else can a company make a profit other than by supplying what people want at a price they're prepared to pay? It's not profitable to provide something people don't need. It's not profitable to provide something people need at a price they can't pay or don't want to pay. Meeting people's needs at a price they're prepared to pay and profit can dance together. They really can. Fourth is unrealistic collective control over productive resources. Nationalization brings industry under democratic control and makes it accountable to the people. But this is so patently unrealistic, it's laughable. The machinery of social control has never been devised. There's no conceivable way in which the American citizen can control the taxicab system of transportation. So I'm, I'm wary of socialism, not just because of its history of failure, but because it's built on so many faulty premises, it seems to be untenable. Reason number three we should be wary of socialism is that socialism is a philosophical idea, not a workable system. According to Noam Chomsky, again, real socialism means to convert the means of production into the property of freely associated producers, and thus the social property of people who have liberated themselves from exploitation by their master as a fundamental step towards a broader realm of human freedom. Well, now listen, these are nice aspirations. They really are nice aspirations, but they're also highly abstract aspirations. You can think about the questions you'd like to ask after hearing that. Uh, like which set of institutions would deliver them? How would those institutions work? How would we monitor whether they deliver what they ought to deliver? And how would we correct them if they do not? Giving workers ownership over the means of production is just an abstract aspiration. It's not a tangible description of an economic system. In a society with a population of over 330 million people, how would the workers manage their means of production collectively? How would that work? How would I, as an example, be able to meaningfully exercise control over my 130 millionth part of a steel mill or a car factory? Socialist advocates don't have an answer to these questions. This brings Niemitz to an important conclusion and observation. He writes this, Contemporary socialists define real socialism in terms of the outcomes they would like to see, rather than the institutional setup which is supposed to produce those outcomes. 
worth it's a good good observation contemporary socialists define real socialism in terms of the outcomes they would like to see rather than the institutional setup which is supposed to produce those outcomes Karl marx after all who's got to be attributed with being a fountainhead of some of these ideas marx was not an economist nor was he a politician nor was he a businessman you know what marx did marx was a philosopher and he came up with a philosophical system of thought that speaks in terms of outcomes not a system designed to reach those outcomes. Reason number four, free enterprise, while imperfect, has produced positive results. Before the advent of industrial free enterprise, virtually the whole of the world's population lived in abject poverty. Before the mid-19th century, it would have have made a sense to measure poverty. It would not have made sense to measure poverty because uh, such measure wouldn't have shown anything interesting. Its long-term average would have been close to 100%. It's not coincidence that you start to see this change in the later 19th century when industrial free enterprise began to come alive. So for most of history, you've got all these markers. For most of history, you got the average life expectancy was below 30 years of age. Uh, this was partly a result of, of high infant mortality rates, but life expectancy among those who survived infancy was still well below 50 years. It was only with the spread of industrial free enterprise that life expectancy began to rise systematically over time, at first only in the Western world and then elsewhere. So globally today, the average life expectancy is now over 70 years. Now listen, no economic system will be perfect as long as human beings are involved with it. Everything we touch is going to be corrupted in some way. But, but free enterprise has a resume that includes some success. The global poverty rate is the lowest it's ever been in history. Global life expectancy, whether measured at birth or as remaining life expectancy at a given age, is is its highest it's ever been in history. Uh, Global infant mortality rates are the lowest they've ever been in history. Global literacy rates are the highest they have ever been in history. One can almost pick any economic, social, or even uh, environmental indicator at random and place a wager that it will have improved over the past 30 or 40 years. To a very large extent, these improvements have to be attributed to Free enterprise. There are always exceptions. There are other factors at play, but on the whole, measures of economic freedom are a very good predictor of the extent of improvement. What I th- what I think tends to happen, uh, what I think tends to happen is that free enterprise is judged by its shortcomings, which we should not simply gloss over or look over. Free enterprise has shortcomings, and and we're right to f- uh, identify those and criticize those. But socialism is judged as an idea in the intentions of its proponents. When you judge actual results, when actual results are judged against aspirational results, free enterprise can never win. If we can be honest about socialism's actual results, its failures, We will see that however imperfect free enterprise is, it still remains the best economic system that exists today. Number five, fifth reason we should be wary. Socialism concentrates power. Free enterprise dilutes power. Uh, We still have not seen, and this is interesting to track historically in these two dozen countries I listed uh, at the beginning, we still have not seen a socialist experiment which has not sooner or later descended into authoritarianism. Even if we provide the benefit of the doubt that um, socialists never aspired to create authoritarian societies, 
they inevitably descend into them. Socialism always ends up concentrating power with a few. Niemitz writes this. He says, democratic collective ownership can work perfectly well, but only in a small, homogenous, voluntary communities with simple economies. Now, Niemitz uses the classic example of the Israeli kibbutz. He writes this, one can meaningfully say that the community as a whole organizes its economic affairs collectively and democratically. But even then, a kibbutz cannot be considered an alternative to the market economy. A kibbutz is not an economy in its own right. It is an actor within an economy, namely the predominantly market-based economy of Israel and beyond. This is what allows each kibbutz to specialize in a narrow, manageable range of economic activities. The kibbutz can be, perfectly, can be a perfectly viable model, but a quick glance at the history of, the, of kibbutzim is enough to make clear that that model is neither scalable nor transferable. Kibbutzim have never grown beyond a certain size. A kibbutz with more than a thousand members would be counted as one of the largest. While the traditional collective kibbutz model still works for many, uh, many of them, some have moved away from it, introducing more conventional management methods and becoming more like conventional private enterprises over time. There has also been a tendency for kibbutzim to outsource functions they would once have provided internally. So what he's saying is that democratic collectivism requires very small and homogenous communities characterized by a high degree of internal agreement on aims and means. As we'll see here, this is a, it's a, this is a harbinger, a foretaste of the church. Um, if you're, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know, so listen to this again. Democratic collectivism requires small, homogenous communities characterized by a high degree of internal agreement. The only place you're going to find that with consistency is within a Christian community called the church. Outside of that, it's not possible. You're not going to find that. You're not going to be able to create that this side of heaven, at least not voluntarily so. In order to get this democratic collectivism, you have to have a potent central planning board. Leon Trotsky said it well, writing about the Soviet Union. He says, there is no other government in the world in whose hands the fate of the whole country is concentrated to such a degree. The Soviet government occupies in relation to the whole economic system, the position which a capitalist occupies in relation to a single enterprise. The centralized character of the national economy converts the state power into a factor of enormous significance. F.A. Hayek, interacting with Trotsky, explains this. He says, by concentrating power so that it can be used in the service of a single plan, it is not merely transformed, but infinitely heightened. By uniting in the hands of some single body power formerly exercised independently by many, an amount of power is created infinitely greater than any that existed before, so much more far-reaching as almost to be different in kind. It is entirely fallacious to argue that the great power exercised by a central planning board would be no greater than the power collectively exercised by private boards of directors. There is, in a competitive society, nobody who can exercise even a fraction of the power which a socialist planning board would possess. To decentralize power is to reduce the absolute amount of power. He's right on. Human beings are sinful, flawed, and messed up. The best thing we can do is to dilute power, distribute it among many. Socialists will say that's what they're doing, but the system is unworkable and it always ends up in the opposite extreme, concentrating power among a few. All right, so these are five 
reasons to be wary of socialism. Let me quickly, to conclude, give four takeaways uh, as I think about our, our current cultural location. Very quickly. Number one, fascination with socialism. Fascination with socialism reveals historical naivety. One of the reasons socialism is most popular with the under 30 crowd is due to idealized notions of how the world works and ignorance about how it has worked. There is an underbelly to socialism that many are unaware of. And this is where we would be wise to listen to stories of those who have actually lived in these countries, who have lived within this economic system. People advocating for socialism in the U.S. most often have never lived in a socialist nation. So there's a historical naivety. Second, fascination with socialism reveals practical naivety. To to be very blunt about it, socialist advocates speak in terms of outcomes they would like to see, not the institutional setup that will produce those results. It is a theoretically aspirational idea. It is not a practical workable system. Third, fascination with socialism reveals anthropological naivety. This is what I mean by that. The Bible insists human beings are more sinful, flawed, and messed up than we can possibly imagine. We are capable of extraordinary evil. Socialism's impracticality results in concentrating power among a few in order to force it to work. When you look at the two dozen failed socialist attempts, that's a recurring theme. The power of the state was unmatched. If human beings are capable of an extraordinary evil, I would rather dilute their power and create as many accountabilities as possible rather than concentrate it. So for all of its faults, free enterprise does a better job of diluting power among many than socialism does. And fourth, a Christian community converted to Christ walking in accordance with the scriptures and being transformed by the spirit is the best ecosystem for caring for people economically. Um, Those who have had maybe a flirtatious relationship with socialism because of the way in which at least it's presented that people are cared for economically. uh, Listen carefully to this. Some have contended the early church was socialist slash communist. No, it wasn't. Let me give you a couple of reasons for that. And in so doing, it's going to flesh out how this church worked. First, there is no evidence that the first Christians shared in the means of production and no record that they abolished private property. We see nothing like a workers collective, let alone state-run enterprises in the book of Acts. The Christians were generous, but they did not disavow personal ownership of their possessions. Um, we see Christians selling their land and houses in order to provide for the needy. We do that. We do see that. And yet, Acts 5.4 makes very clear, these assets remained in possession of private owners and could be used as the owner saw fit. Even after the properties were sold, the proceeds belonged to the individual or family, not to the state, nor to a collective, nor even to the church. And this is confirmed in the history of the early church as we see congregations meeting in private homes and persons still in possession of private property. Second, the second reason why the early church was not socialist, was not communist, is that the distribution of possessions in Acts was not by force or coercion, but chosen freely and voluntarily. To say the church had a wonderful communal spirit, which it did, is far different 
from saying they practiced anything remotely like state-enforced communism. The expression, everything in common, was used to describe radical generosity in the early church. Sharing in the church was and is a clear sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom, but nowhere in the New Testament do we see the church embody or support a practice that forces wealth redistribution at penalty of church-run discipline or penalty of the state-run sword. Everything in common, the, the phrase it's used, spoke to the love of the Christians, not to a law among the Christians. Now, throughout my years in pastoral ministry, I've maintained and maintained to this day that if you want to see the poor cared for, watch how gospel-centered, spirit-empowered churches do it. That's the model. And the example held out in Acts marries together private property ownership with voluntary contributions. Let me leave you with this. Acts chapter 2, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions, their possessions. They were selling their possessions, voluntarily selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We want to see people cared for economically. The best thing we can do is to see them become part of the church. Lots to think about. Thank you for joining me today, and we will see you next time.